you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So the last two Sundays I've been away on vacation. It is good to be back. Those Sundays, though, were spent worshiping in St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Harlem. It is the oldest African-American Anglican church in New York City with a history of over 200 years. A different kind of community in many ways from ours, yet liturgically speaking kind of the same mother tongue. So it's interesting to be in somewhere so different and yet clearly our first cousins. Last Sunday they observed Martin Luther King Sunday because in the States the Monday is King's Day. And because of this special event, they had brought in a guest preacher from the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And man, that's preaching. I'll do my best. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. It is with this text from the prophet Isaiah that Matthew opens his telling of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew wants the reader, the the listener, to understand Jesus himself as being that light. A light that will break through the darkness and the shadow of death. Fittingly then, the lectionary also had us read from Isaiah. And if you were really paying attention, you might have noticed that the word in Isaiah was slightly different from the wording in Matthew. The people who walked, not sat, walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived, again, not sat as it is in Matthew, those who lived in a land of deep darkness rather than in the region and shadow of death as Matthew recalls it, on them has light shined. Now, That's because Matthew would have been reading the Septuagint version of Isaiah, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which then in turn gets translated into English in our Bible. In Isaiah, it's translated directly to English from Hebrew. So that's just a little object lesson on how translation can do its own work on biblical texts. Regardless, though, of those differences, the force of the words remained the same. Jesus is the light that the people have been awaiting, whether or not they are yet able to recognize it. The darkness to which both Isaiah and Matthew are pointing has a very much political edge to it in that both writers are living in times when Israel is under the control of an intruding empire. In Isaiah, it is the Assyrian empire that's in control, whereas in Matthew's time, it is, of course, Rome. In both cases, in both times, the hope and the dream that Israel, as God's people, would be a light to lighten the nations has been stunted by those imperial political realities. Now as Jesus surfaces, his proclamation is that things are shifting. 
The light is indeed drawing near all evidence to the contrary. Therefore, the people are to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, at that moment, Jesus sounds an awful lot like John the Baptist, doesn't he? Repent, the kingdom is drawing near. John, that fiery prophet who, Matthew tells us, has only recently been arrested by King Herod. That Jesus is now going public, the very time that John's active ministry is coming to an end, is not incidental. John has paved the way for Jesus, just as he said he would do. Now, we hear the word repent, and our minds often go immediately to a kind of a confessional stance regarding personal wrongs and transgressions. Yet, as N.T. Wright points out, there's more than just that going on here in the gospel. And so he writes, Jesus' message of repentance was not that they should feel sorry for personal and private sins, though he would, of course, want that as well, but that as a nation they should stop rushing toward the cliff edge of violent revolution. They should stop rushing toward the cliff edge of violent revolution and instead go the other way toward God's kingdom of light and peace and healing and forgiveness for themselves and for the world. In other words, the light that is shining in the darkness is about more than just personal sin or personal salvation, but rather is light for the sake of the whole people, indeed for the whole of the world. That is what Israel has been awaiting. Even if the temptation was always there, to think more narrowly in terms of mounting a revolt against the Roman occupiers in order to try to reclaim a political independence. As history will soon tell, they did succumb to that temptation. And it was to a disastrous and violent result at the hands of a merciless empire. This call to repent, literally to turn around, turn instead towards the light that is Jesus, is very much in view then in the next scene, the calling of those first disciples. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. It's kind of a quick, almost clipped scene. Jesus sees Simon and Andrew fishing, calls out, follow me, and immediately 
they get up and they do. He then comes across James and John, mending their nets, calls out to them, and immediately they do, leaving their father behind. You have to wonder what they would have seen in Jesus that would lead them to take such a risk and simply follow immediately, as Matthew emphasizes. They're seeing the light that is in him, breaking already through the darkness that has held the people in bondage. That's Matthew's point here. It's interesting, though, to take note of a detail that Luke emphasizes in his account of this same episode. In Luke's telling, this calling of the first disciples is linked to a miraculous catch of fish. They've been fishing all night, no success. Jesus tells them to let down their nets again, and they do, and the nets are filled. When they see that, filled with fish, it also fills Simon Peter with fear. For when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm really struck by Simon Peter's fear. I mean, it's one thing to be an admirer of Jesus, or even someone who receives healing at his hands. But it's an entirely different thing to be a disciple, to dare to follow Jesus out on whatever road he's going to lead you. It might be tempting to think that things would be so easy in our lives if only we received such a clear call as to who we are to be, what we're meant to do with our lives. Follow me, I will make you fishers of people. Yet Peter's response is completely understandable and reasonable, at least as far as I'm concerned. Just let me be, Lord. I'm not up to this. My life is broken. Let me stay here in the old familiar. Just let me be. No, No, don't be afraid, Simon. Follow me. Soon enough, they do. They follow. Soon enough, they'll discover that their calling as disciples is not a neat or easy one. Ever onward and upward from victory to victory and all that. No, no. The opposition they will face while Jesus is alive with them will be real. Then, later, when they begin to plant the early church communities, just as real will be the persecutions that will chase them as they seek to be a people of light in the midst of a world so caught up in choosing paths of darkness over the way of light. But the fear will be gone. Do not be afraid, Simon. Get up. Follow. It will be ultimately and fully banished in light of Jesus' resurrection and in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That choice to set down the nets, leave the boats, and follow him as disciples unveils the beginnings of their true calling. It begins the remaking of them to become precisely what they were created to be, 
a remaking that will wind its way through the gospel accounts bit by bit and then burst into its fullness in those stories from the book of Acts. So, in this time, when we as a church community are participating in the Communities of Calling initiative of the Collegeville Institute, we do well to ask ourselves again, what might be our calling? My calling, your calling, or our calling together? What is it that we are meant to do and to be in our various lives that might define us not as mere admirers of Jesus, but instead as his disciples? What are the nets and the boats that we need to leave behind, set aside, In N.T. Wright's words, what are the, quote, lifestyles and practices that look attractive and lucrative that we might be called to set aside in order to maintain honesty, integrity, faith, hope, and love? Oh, and in laying those things aside, in doing that, Discover that such choices not only locate us truthfully as who we are meant to be, but also stand as right and responsible choices as citizens of our society and stewards of God's created world. In a world so marked by the darkness of climate change, divisive power politics, desperate social conditions linked to poverty and addiction, we are again and always called to be a people who turn toward the light, disciples who repent toward the light, stubbornly and resiliently toward the light, always toward the light. That's the message and the call of this season of Epiphany, as God again manifests to us who and what we are. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.